So we are in a series on the Holy Spirit. And what we're trying to do is get our head around who he is, what he does, uh, try to bring understanding in the scriptures. Uh, I think the Holy Spirit sometimes can be misunderstood a little bit in the church. I gave you a wee bit of personal story last week just regarding my own journey and I'll try to do that as we go along each week whatever we're talking about I'll try to put in a little bit of of where I come from on it um, myself let me read just from Mark chapter 1 every one of the four gospels have got this there's not an awful lot that is in every gospel the feeding of the five thousands in every gospel Jesus death and resurrection is in every gospel Um, but there's not an awful lot of overlap in all four of them together. But this is something that they all begin with somewhere early in their their writing. Mark in chapter 1 verse 7 says, This was John the Baptist's message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we want to talk this morning about this thing that that gets knocked around sometimes in Pentecostal circles called the baptism in the Holy Spirit and try to bring plenty of Bible to it and and get an understanding of, of where it is. This is controversial. I am not trying to offend. So if it happens, please be gracious. Um, let me tell you my desire from the outset. I want everybody filled with the Holy Ghost. Radically filled, overflowing, empowered, living fully human, fully alive in all of the, the powerful spirit resource that God has given to us to live the Christian life. And we're not going to fight over terminology and we're not going to fight over timing. We're going to look at these things in the book of Acts, but we're not going to fall out over it. Uh, so a few years after I chose to follow Jesus, as I told you last week, I, I chose to follow Jesus in 1998, December. I was 21. I'd been raised in a very traditional sort of Church of Ireland background. I'm thankful for it. But after a while and going to a few Pentecostal churches, I started to hear this term or this phrase people would say to me or preachers would say, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I hadn't a clue what they were talking about. Not a notion. Um, And I got a bit confused regarding the terminology that was used. I studied the scriptures because that's what I do whenever I hear something and I want to figure it out. I I get into the scriptures and get into books and try to suss it out. And I concluded, as I told you last week, that all of the gifts and the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we read about in the New Testament is still to be in operation today. That's my firm position and I can't see it changing. Um, I began to pray that I would live in in that sort of spirit-empowered level of Christianity. I used the illustration last week of pushing the lawnmower. Whenever the lawnmower is meant to be powered and it's meant to be driven, it's meant to have something within it that drives it forward and I just walk with it. If that power isn't there, I have to push it and it's hard work and you get tired real quick. And I think a lot of people sometimes push the Christian life. They're just, you know, it's just effort and graft instead of being empowered by the Holy Spirit. So about five years after I started following Jesus, 
In 2003, I mentioned it last week, after praying and asking God for it, one day at home I prayed in tongues. And uh, nothing sort of strange happened around that. And I will talk about that. We'll take a Sunday morning and we will talk about that. Again, we will go to the New Testament. We'll go to Paul and we'll keep it biblical. But the question I would then sort of have or the confusion that came to me was, when was I baptized in the Holy Spirit? Was it in 1998 when I got born again and decided to follow Jesus? Was it in 2003 when I started to pray in tongues and to hunger after these, these encounters? When was it? And I got confused and I got frustrated. And I can remember many times guest speakers would come to church and they would do Sunday morning and Sunday night Really good speakers, really good guys, 100%, 100%. And, and on Sunday morning, at the end of their message, they would maybe say, tonight I'm going to speak about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I would be like, yes, come on. You know, somebody's going to actually explain what this is. And, and, uh, and, and, and usually it didn't happen. <laughs> you know, they, they, they sort of said they would and they started to, but they digressed into telling stories. And I wanted scripture. I wanted something to really put foundation under this. Pentecostalism is the largest and fastest growing church denomination, if you could call it that, in the world. Uh, There are 600 million Pentecostal Christians on planet earth today. Uh, Most of them are in Africa and South America. Um, There's a fair few in the United Kingdom, I think about 3 million maybe. United States about 10 million. And about, that's about a th- a, between a quarter and a third of Christians would say they are Pentecostal, charismatic, spirit-filled, whatever you want to call it. There's about 35,000 people a day globally who are getting born again, deciding to follow Jesus through the churches that are Pentecostal, ministries that are Pentecostal, and, and, and that, 35,000 a day. It's estimated that at that rate of growth, by about 2050, one in 10 human beings on planet Earth, not that there's any anywhere else, like, but one in 10 will be Pentecostal Christians. So not just one in 10 Christians, but one in 10 people will be Pentecostal. And one of the things that Pentecostalism has brought us is a wonderful breath of fresh air into worship. I think when, when the Spirit is moving... When people are genuinely filled with the Holy Spirit, they will be obsessed with Jesus. And they will want to praise him and they will want to worship him. And regardless of some of the controversies that I don't know an awful lot about, but, but Hillsong and Bethel sometimes are churches that people like to criticize. I don't know an awful lot about either of them, but I know this. They have blessed the church with wonderful songs. <laughs> And that makes me think that the Spirit is moving in those places because you would not have such an overflow of wonderful praise and worship music unless there were people there who were obsessed with Jesus. So I'm so thankful. That's one of the things that Pentecostalism has given to us. And even if we go back in our own good wee country to one decent spud called Robin Mark, who, who in Northern Ireland just breathed, he breathed fresh air into worship a few decades ago and he wrote new songs and he led wonderful worship events with big Celtic rhythms and it was class 
And again, Pentecostal, from a Pentecostal background, and just that overflow of the Spirit and of obsession with Jesus came out in song. Unfortunately, Pentecostalism is known for a few negative things as well. Our Bible teaching historically hasn't been just as good as it should have been. One example being a thing called the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel, which is utter, utter garbage. Utter garbage. There is not a biblical foundation for it whatsoever. It destroys people. There's also been, unfortunately, a a disproportionate number of leadership scandals in Pentecostal churches. It is alarming globally to look at the number of leaders who are, who are being taken out in the Pentecostal church. Take this really seriously. Pray for your leadership. Because if the devil can knock the leadership over, he can do huge damage. Huge damage. And it grieves me whenever I see leaders in, in particularly very large churches um, who, who are struggling and who are... And I think the problem is how the churches are structured. These leaders frequently just don't answer to anyone but themselves. And then once they fall, it just causes carnage. So there's a few negatives about about Pentecostalism, but there's a lot more positive than negative. I think people are embracing the Holy Spirit in a way in our day that maybe has not happened for a long time. And it is not limited to one denomination or one group of Christians. It is going throughout all denominations where people are hungry to experience the Holy Spirit. So what do people mean when they talk about this baptism in the Holy Spirit? The Greek word baptizo just comes straight into English as baptize. It doesn't get translated. It's called, when you take one word from from a language and you bring it into another language, it's called a transliteration, like cafe in French. And we talk about cafes, but it's a French word that we've brought in. So baptize is just straight from the Greek. And what the Greek word baptizo means is immerse, as in completely place something underwater, immerse. And when something is immersed, every part of it gets wet, right? Not just a wee bit of it, all of it, completely soaked from top to bottom. So the picture that I want you to have, and this term that the, the biblical writers use on several occasions, and you'll see that they use many more, The picture that they have is they want you to be completely immersed in the Holy Spirit. Completely. Not a little bit, not a a sprinkle, not a a quick shower. They want you to be utterly dunked in the Holy Ghost. Okay. As, As the scriptures go on, and uh, we looked last week at the, at the Spirit being referred to like breath and wind. And we looked at images of power and life. As you go on through the scriptures, you get liquid imagery for the Spirit. Watery imagery and oil imagery. You get the imagery of anointing, which is done with oil and of pouring out. And, and that anointing in the Old Testament would have been something maybe poured over the head. And you read about it in the Psalms in various places. You know, oil being poured over the head and trickling down. And then you get to the New Testament and it's not a pouring or a sprinkling. It is a total immersion. Right? And I just, I want to be emphatic about that. That's a good thing. That is the, the, the image of the Holy Spirit. And whenever someone comes up to, to you or to me years ago and says, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, what they mean is, I want you to have everything that he's got. I want your whole life to be covered. 
I don't care about theology and terminology. I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what they mean. So it's a good thing, and I'm glad people asked me about it. A couple of wrong ideas that I definitely don't want you to get this morning as you listen. One of them is, if this is the first time you've heard about this, or given serious attention to it, you've maybe heard about it just a couple of times before and never really thought that much about it, I don't want you to think that your Christian life has been a waste of time because you've never really thought about this that much. Okay, please do not. Uh, I, I do not want to create, which I think can happen if the teaching's ropey, I do not want to create some idea that there are two tiers of Christians. There are the sort of the regular garden variety Christians who you know, who are decent spuds themselves. And then there's the spirit-filled Christians who are just, you know, the, 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 the avengers of the church. You know, don't, don't, okay? Don't, do not in your mind create a two-tier, two-class system. Do not in your mind think to yourself, I've never thought much about this. Goodness, have I wasted years. And do not, for goodness sake, think that you're not even a Christian <laughs> because you haven't thought about this. When you read Paul and read, read the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is active in conversion, massively active in convicting of sin and of transforming people and changing the heart and taking up residence within us. So, so please don't think, oh my goodness, I've been going to church for 20 years and doing churchy stuff. Am I not even saved? Please, no, don't, don't get those wrong ideas. This term, baptism in the Holy Spirit then, it's used, as I said earlier, four times in the four Gospels at the start of each one. And it's only used three more times in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 1, and if you have your Bible open at Acts, I will put some verses on the screen and others you're just going to have to flick to. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has been raised from the dead and he spends a period of time between his resurrection and Pentecost, roughly, there's a 50-day period there. He spends about 40 days of that period with the disciples. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, on one occasion, while he was eating with them. Love that. Okay. Just Luke did not need to write that. Luke, Luke could have just left that wee bit out, but he wrote it. And I love all the times that the gospel writers just drop in. By the way, this happened at a meal. This happened as people were together eating food. Supernatural stuff happened. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, this is the fifth usage of the term baptism with the Holy Spirit, and it's Jesus himself in Acts chapter 1. Again, quoting pretty much what John the Baptist had said. In Acts chapter 11, Peter mentions it as he recounts on uh, going to a guy's house, a guy called Cornelius. And we'll talk about Cornelius a wee bit later. But Peter says in Acts 11, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. And I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So that's the sixth. There are only seven mentions of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Those first six are all really relating to the one event, which we're going to come to in a minute. 
Paul then uses it in 1 Corinthians 12, a lovely picture of the church. He says, we were all baptized by one spirit as to form one body. The spirit has created the unity of the church. There is one spirit and we were all baptized by him to form one church, whether it's here or whether it's in Lisburn or Belfast or New York or Sydney or wherever it is, one church, and we were all baptized by the Spirit to form one church. <clears throat> so that verse there, that verse alone caused me to hesitate about saying to a Christian, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That, that, that verse, because that verse to me looks more like conversion. Whenever people choose to follow Jesus and become part of the church, that they have been baptized by the Spirit into the body. And I, on the strength of that verse, I thought, if I go and say to someone who's been saved for a couple of years, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. If they think like I do and they read that, they'll get confused because they'll think I'm telling them they're not saved. Okay, so, so I'm, I'm cautious about the, the terminology that I use. Maybe it's just my mind. Maybe I overthink things. So those are the seven occasions that baptism in the Holy Spirit is mentioned. But there's lots of other terms. I'm not going to go to them, but you will see the Holy Spirit referred to as the promise. You will see him referred to as power from on high. You will see him referred in terms of anointing, a gift being given, something being poured out being filled with the Spirit, being full of the Spirit. Just multiple uses of multiple different terms. So I'm much more likely to to pray for a person or to say to a person, you need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. (laughs) That's the terminology I'm more likely to use because I don't think that's going to cause the same confusion. So the biblical authors use a diverse range of, of terms and so will we. Now I'm going to look at five things in the book of Acts. Five events where the Holy Spirit came. And you know what? If you're like me and you like a neat little pattern, you want everything lined up, this is going to wreck you. <laughs> okay? Just, just letting you know, if, if you want a sort of this happens, this happens, and then this happens, you're not going to like it <laughs> because it's, it's just not neat and tidy. First one, day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, let me read a few verses from the start of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, Pentecost 50 days after Passover. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Because Jesus had told them, stay in Jerusalem, don't go anywhere. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Do you remember Numa? Do you remember Ruach from last week? This blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And what that imagery means, I'm not entirely sure. When I think of a little fire, I think of an altar and a place of sacrifice. I think of a light, a candle being lit and shedding light. I think tongues of fire would suggest some miracle taking place in their mouths, like happened to Jeremiah and happened to Isaiah and happened to other Old Testament prophets to enable them to speak for God. So there's lots of 
of imagery maybe overlapping there. They were filled, all of them, all of them, not just the 12. There was about 120 up there, all of them. There were men and there were women, all of them. Okay, do you get the point? All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Again, we'll talk about tongues in more detail in a few weeks. But one of the things that happened on the day of Pentecost is that they went out and they were able to communicate the gospel in different languages. The Holy Spirit empowered them for mission and empowered them to cross over cultural boundaries with the gospel. And we need to be able to do that in Northern Ireland because we sometimes expect people to make a massive cultural jump from where they live into the church which is the oddest thing they've ever seen. I mean, wooden seats at 90 degrees and and really old musical instruments. And thank God for these beautiful big cathedrals and all of that. But do you realize the cultural jump we are asking people to make if that's where they're coming? No, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do the jumping. (laughs) We're meant to go and make the cultural leap to where people are rather than inviting them and asking them to make it to where we are. The wind blows on them. Let the Old Testament pictures come to you. Ezekiel 37, what brought the the bones, the dry bones to life? The wind blew and, and they rattled and they joined together and came alive. In Genesis 2, what made Adam a living being? It was the breath of God coming into him. In John 20, when Jesus appeared in the upper room, what did he do to the disciples? He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So all of these things are coming together on this day of Pentecost. And Peter then goes on to preach a sermon. Now this is Peter who just a few weeks before was denying Jesus. Can't say that that Peter Ministries was doing really well at that point. Peter was denying Jesus. And now on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, goes out and preaches a sermon. And 3,000 people people get born again. What's the difference between Peter now and Peter then? It's the Holy Spirit. He has been empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to do this. And he tells them in Acts 2 verse 38, he says, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. And that's the order. And you think, I love a wee order. I love a step-by-step. Repent, be baptized, and you will receive the Spirit. Class. I think what happened on this day was a momentous moment in history. Prior to that, in the Old Testament, the odd prophet, the odd judge, the odd king, we read of the Spirit coming upon them. But now it's almost as if Jesus just just lavished humanity with a tidal wave of the Holy Spirit. Poured out on his church that all of those who were there were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that for us as well is a reality. We are part of the church and therefore that full and complete immersion in the Holy Spirit is our our gift as well. Now after Acts chapter 2, there are about six chapters until Acts 8, which is where we're going to go in a minute. 
and thousands of people get saved. Now here's something that you need to, you need to get, especially if you've been around Pentecostalism for a while. Classic Pentecostalism teaches that people have to have a one-off second experience after they get saved. I do not agree. It happens for some people and that is their experience and that's fine. But I don't think that you can force it on everyone. And I'll talk more about that as we go on. On this occasion, on the day of Pentecost, the disciples had a second experience. They already followed Jesus and now the Holy Spirit came upon them. It was quite a unique time in the history of the church. And I think to build doctrine on that is a wee bit shaky. Lots of people got saved between Acts 2 and Acts 8 and none of them had a second experience that we read of. Just that they got born again. 3,000, 5,000, multitudes. Okay? Now, I want you to get me and I want you to stay with me. Don't switch off if I've just annoyed you. Okay? Some people have a second experience. And I would, I would say to you, if you, were, if you were going to tell me you've had a second experience, I would say, I hope you've had a third experience. And a fourth one, and a fifth one, and a sixth. Because as I'll go on to tell you later, the filling of the Holy Ghost is supposed to be ongoing. Not one-off. The problem I have is not with the term second experience. It's with the idea that it's one-off instead of being lifelong, okay? And the reason I'm a wee bit iffy about that is because Acts chapter 2, amen, Acts chapter 2, then we go to Acts chapter 3, and then in Acts chapter 4, look at this, it happens again. So don't, don't go to Acts 2 and tell people there's a one-off second experience you need to have because two chapters later, they have it again. They're at a prayer meeting. This is the best prayer meeting ever in Acts chapter 4. And after they prayed in verse 31, it's really instructive in how to pray and how to pray corporately as well. It's brilliant. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Courage for evangelism. Courage for ministry. The Spirit came and filled them again. I multiple times I can look back to moments where I've felt that the Holy Spirit has just come upon me and given me fresh energy, fresh courage, fresh whatever. Oh, I want it to happen again and again and again. Not only once, please. Definitely not. Every single morning in life, I pray, Holy Spirit, fill me. <laughs> I need a fresh filling today. I leak. Okay, There's a hole in my bucket. And I need you. I need more of you. I need I not just look back. 15 years ago and said, boom, there's where it happened. But say, come on, more, more. Daily filling. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 18, be filled. And when you look at the tense of how he's writing, he says, be continually filled. Not just once, but over and over and over again. Now, the second encounter in Acts, and we'll accelerate a bit here. The second encounter is in Samaria. This is another unique moment in history because this is the first time the gospel has gone outside of Jewish context. And it's now going to Samaritans who were seen as half-breeds, Jews mixed with other races. And whenever the gospel gets to Samaria, I want you to look at what happens. So if you've got your Bible, we're in Acts 8. Because these guys are going to have a second experience as well. Acts chapter 8, it says, so, so Philip goes and preaches to them. 
The church is persecuted and scattered and he ends up in Samaria. In chapter 8, verse 6, we read that they pay close attention to what was said. They're listening really carefully as the word of God is preached to them. In verse 12, we read that they believed what Philip said. He talked about the good news of the kingdom, the name of Jesus, and they believed. And they're baptized in verse 12 as well. Verse 14, they accept, they receive the word of God. And you're just like, these guys are saved. They are. They definitely, they've heard the gospel, they've responded, and they've got baptized. But in verse 16, we read, <clears throat> building up to verse 16, the apostles hear that this has happened, the guy back in Jerusalem, and they send Peter and John to go and check it out. And when Peter and John arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. All right, so here we go. These people have heard the gospel, responded in faith, been baptized, but no Holy Spirit fall upon them until the apostles come and lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Again, second experience. So if you want to make an argument for a second experience, that's fine. And if you want to say there's a delay between someone being born again and receiving the Spirit on the basis of that, that's okay. It is possible for a delay to occur. It also is possible that because this is the first time the gospel went outside the Jewish community, the apostles needed to be there to ratify it and actually see that this was for real because they had real trouble with the gospel going to the Gentiles. And whenever they showed up and the Holy Spirit fell, they were like, okay, this is legit. We're in. These people have been born again. In Acts chapter 9, we have Paul's story. Paul meets a resurrected man. And that will sort of ring your bell a wee bit when that happens. He meets a resurrected man on the road to Damascus. And he's blind and he doesn't eat for three days. Part of me thinks he was fasting. And part of me thinks when you have experienced what he experienced, you're going to lose your appetite for a while. You're going to be a bit freaked out. You can't see. And Ananias comes. Bless him. He comes and he lays hands on Saul and, and prays for him and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and was baptized. No, hang on. We read earlier. No, no, no. This couldn't be right. You have to repent and then you have to be baptized and then you receive the Spirit. Not this time. It's all getting a wee bit messy for us neat and tidy people. Because Paul, I would say, is repenting for all he's fit as he sits in the dark listening to his stomach rumbling. But he is filled with the Spirit and then he's baptized afterwards in water. And you're starting to get a bit annoyed with Luke as he writes the book of Acts. Because in Acts chapter 8, you would think the apostles have to go to Samaria and lay hands on these people for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And then Acts chapter 9, a dude who's not an apostle comes and lay hands on Paul and he receives the Spirit. Can I just tell you something? Do not allow someone else to force their experience of the Spirit on you as if it is the only way to encounter the Holy Spirit. And do not likewise force your experience on someone else. I have seen people 
falling over and having radical encounters with God on the floor. I think that's awesome. It has never happened to me. And I don't feel bad about that. (laughs) I have had very quiet experiences of experiencing the Spirit, of, of beginning to pray in tongues, of praying with people and feeling God giving me prophetic words for them. I'll talk about that more over the next few weeks and sharing those things with them in a very quiet way, in a reserved way, in an unspectacular way. I will not force my experience upon the person who fell on the floor. And I will not, you know, feel bad because I haven't encountered what they have encountered. God's spirit is diverse. He moves in many, many different ways. And as we've seen already in Acts, don't try a one-size-fits-all approach. Just let the Holy Spirit do what he wants. And if it's quiet and reserved, that's fine. And if it's a bit more open and public, that's fine as well. In Acts chapter 10, the fourth encounter with the Holy Ghost is a guy called Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was a Roman centurion. So the Jews wouldn't have liked him, but He seemed to be a generous guy and a good guy. And actually, he was reasonably well thought of in the community that he lived in. And Peter has an awesome vision and goes to Cornelius' house to preach the gospel to him. And Peter has prepared a message. He spent hours writing notes. And he's got a nice presentation for the big TV at Cornelius' house so that people can stay engaged with the message Um, and he's put a lot of effort into it. And while he is still preaching, the Holy Spirit falls upon everybody that's listening to him. And he's like, I can imagine Peter says, that's so rude. (laughs) You know, I haven't finished. I put ours into this. And the Holy, listen, nobody repented. Nobody got baptized. No one to that, uh, you know, as far as we know, had responded at that point. The Holy Spirit just, it just comes. And, it's, and suddenly, again, your little neat, tidy arrangement of things is blown out of the water again. Because the Holy Spirit falls on these guys while Peter is still preaching. And they begin to speak in tongues, which happened in Acts chapter 2, but not in Acts chapter 8 or in Acts chapter 9. <laughs> oh, goodness, please, somebody help us. Do not put God in a box. Do not tell someone who has not spoken in tongues that they have some subnormal, substandard Christian experience. One of my favorite authors is a guy called Scott McKnight. He is a brilliant writer. He is passionate about the things of the Spirit. And the last I read of him about two years ago, he had prayed and asked God that he would be able to pray in tongues and it had never happened. Never happened didn't diminish his his powerful ministry, teaching, writing books. He didn't get all in a flap about it or feel bad about it. He's like, that's okay. Let's not force our experiences on other people. And let's not get all self-conscious if somebody tries to force their experience on us. The last one is in Ephesus. In Acts 19, Paul rocks up to Ephesus and he finds some disciples, which just means some followers. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, I'm thankful for the King James Version. You know that. But the King James Version was not helpful here because the King James Version says, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And that then causes people to say, got to be a second experience. It wasn't a second experience for Cornelius. The sermon wasn't even over and the Spirit came. Boom. (laughs) All at once. 
That, I think, is, if I was to pick the ideal, I would say that's it. And so would you, because it would mean the sermon would be shorter. Some of you are just praying right now, Holy Spirit, fall in this place so that this man will shut up. <laughs> Cornelius' experience, if someone was to say to me, I want to get saved, I would, I, would, if I've, I would try my best to sit them down and say, let's take half an hour here, let's get a cup of coffee, let me tell you about Jesus, and let me tell you about the Holy Spirit. I don't want you just to walk out knowing your sins are forgiven and you're going to heaven. I want you in part to live. I want you to know the whole package and, and be filled with the Holy Spirit right here, right now at this moment. I don't want to separate it. So that's what happened for Cornelius. But the, the rendering in the King James Version here in Acts 19, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed, is not accurate according to every Bible translation since then um, and is not helpful what what it is more accurately rendered as is did you receive the holy spirit when you believed and their response is we never even heard of him (laughs) we don't know who this is this holy spirit we these guys when you read the story at the start of acts chapter 19 they were followers of john the baptist there are still followers of john the baptist today believe it or not they're called mandeans um there's a lot of them in sweden and Australia. Feel free to forget that. And these guys had been baptized in John's baptism of repentance, but they had not been baptized in the name of Jesus, and they had not been filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul gets straight to work, lays hands on them, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, and these guys speak in tongues and prophesy. And again, there's no delay. As soon as Paul's there, as soon as he puts them right and says, no, hang on, you're following John. John was a good guy, but John pointed to Jesus. As soon as all of that was straightened out, the Holy Spirit fell and empowered them. Some conclusions from Acts. The most important one, the Spirit is essential. No matter what way you read or understand these different accounts of how the Spirit fell on different groups of people, one thing is common to all of them. A powerful, dynamic experience of the Holy Spirit is essential. There is no power for Christian living without the Holy Spirit. And whether it's, it's the way it was in Acts 2 or at Pentecost, or whether it's like Samaria, or what happened to Paul, or Cornelius and his mates, or these guys in Ephesus. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I don't, you know, I, if everyone in the room who, who feels they resonate with what I'm talking about, this experience of the Holy Spirit, if everyone was to get up and tell their own story, every one of them would be different. Thank God for it. Because where the Holy Spirit moves, there is diversity brought together in unity. So I would encourage you to pray every morning, Holy Spirit, come. (laughs) Fill me afresh. And then you say, well, what are you doing today? You're not going to preach to 10,000 people in a big tent. No, I'm going to teach a bunch of teenagers. I need the Holy Ghost, you know. I need the Holy Spirit to live well in front of people. I need the Holy Spirit to love my family well. I need the Holy Spirit to understand God's Word. I need the Holy Spirit. Every morning, ask for that. Fill me, anoint me, baptize me, empower me. Use any words you want. He knows what you mean. <laughs> but we need that powerful, ongoing encounter with the Spirit. The terminology is not important. Okay. So if someone comes up to you and says, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, don't say to them, well, just hold on a wee minute because according to... No, no, you know what they mean. They've got your best interests at heart. 
They want you to be immersed in the power of the Spirit. So let's not get all hung up on terminology. Timing is not important. I would say ideally, I would love people to be born again and follow Jesus, have the Spirit working in conversion, and also be aware that the Spirit comes to empower them for life and ministry all at once. I would hate to think that that is separated. But I would say, you know, whether you've been five years a Christian, 10 years a Christian, 20 years, two months, um, and you're hearing of this, don't get all hung up on the timing and think, oh, I've, I've blown this for some reason. I've waited too long. No, it's not important. It can happen at conversion. It can happen subsequent to conversion. What's more important is that it's ongoing. I don't have much time for people saying, I was filled with the Spirit 20 years ago and I spoke in tongues. And nothing's happened since. <laughs> you know, nothing. Like, where's the ministry? Where's the overflow? Where's the outworking of this? Where, where is it in changed character? Where, where, you know, is it just one thing that you look back on? Or can you say, you know, I, encountered, I can remember times that we have encountered the Holy Spirit here and just known we're in his presence. Just known it. And times on my own and times with Linda where we've gone to get ministry from people and a, and a bunch of people have got around us and prayed for us. And boy, we have encountered the Holy Ghost. Ongoing, over and over and over again. That's the way it's meant to be. And if no one's ever told you that, I apologize on behalf of the church, you know. That, that, that someone said you get your sins forgiven and go to heaven and then left you hanging and didn't tell you about this powerful ongoing life in the Spirit. And it is, it's par for ministry. It's par to see the church built, to encourage one another. The whole, the whole reason for prophetic ministry is that the church will be built up. That's why it comes to build the church. The whole reason for praying in tongues, Paul says, is when I pray in tongues, I build myself up. That's the reason for it. When you see in in the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, what's the outcome of that outpouring of the Spirit? It's that Peter goes out and he's just clean lit and preaches and thousands of people respond. Yeah. Yeah. The Spirit comes to empower us for for ministry, for service. Why is it that some Christians want to get out and connect with the lost community all around them where other Christians just want to sit at home and watch TV? You know? Why is it that some Christians just have a bee in their bonnet and are not content? always wanted to do more, to, to, to connect with their community, to see lives changed and can't just sort of content themselves with, with, with a tub of Pringles and Netflix. Yeah, it's the Holy Ghost. It's the Holy Spirit stirring them. Why is it that some Christians just seem to pray with authority? Maybe not eloquence. Don't, don't confuse the two. Not, maybe not fancy big long words. And, and prayers that are peppered with, with you know, dozens of scripture reference, but there's just power in their prayers. And it can be the most sort of unassuming, simple, not highly educated people, but when they open their mouths and pray, you're like, wow, that's the Holy Ghost. Why is it that some Christians, and be really careful here, why is it that some Christians bore you to death when they preach? <laughs> And others cause you to want to go home and read the whole Bible. One of the, one of the things, one of the connections in my life, and I'm nearly done, that has absolutely blessed me is a guy called Eugene Smith. 
Canadian Bible teacher, now living in Ballymena, planted a church there. Eugene took me under his wing and mentored me for a long, long period of time, especially in the things of the Spirit and in preaching the Word of God. And every time we used to spend Saturdays together, maybe about 15 of us with Eugene, <laughs> and just the Bible's open and away you go. And every time, once five o'clock came and you went home, I was like, I'm going to read the whole Bible tonight. <laughs> because that man has a Holy Ghost empowering him. And as you listen to him teach, you're just like, oh, I want more of this word. <laughs> Why is it that some Christians have intense growth spurts in their walk with God? It's just like you see them and then you see them again six months later and they're just like, what happened to you? It's the Holy Ghost. We need him. We need him, church. We need to live in this dynamic power that the church in the book of Acts had so that we can see transformation in our lives and in our community. Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you that when you conquered death and you rose from the dead and you made atonement for sin, that you weren't done, that you weren't done, that you said to your church, wait until the power comes. And then you and only you could do it, no one else, you poured out your spirit on all flesh, old and young, men and women, you poured out the Holy Ghost. You baptized the church in the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, fill us afresh. Fill us afresh, Lord. Let us not be ankle deep or knee deep or waist deep. Let's be swimming in the river, immersed. Immersed. Holy Spirit, we need you. This town needs a Spirit-filled community, overflowing with hope and love. Please, Holy Ghost, come afresh. For every thirsting heart in this place, will you come and pour out living water all over them, Lord? Even this day, even now as we worship, Lord, will you encounter people with your spirit? When they go home this afternoon, will they feel different? When they go to pray and read your word, may they know that something has changed. May they dream dreams of you this night, Lord. May they have visions. May they not be content anymore with the TV and a bag of crisps, Lord, but may they just say, I've got to get out. I've got to go out of this upper room and get out into the community because I'm, I've got my lamp lit by the Holy Ghost. Come, Lord. Come fill us afresh, we pray.